Hello there. My name's Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. Sea angling and commercial fishing are like two opposing ends of a very long bar magnet. Between them, there is an extensive shared resource, in this case the fish, but shared from two diametrically opposing poles and with not a lot of real common ground between the two. That said, there is without doubt a genuine fascination amongst sea anglers, and it seems the public at large for TV programmes such as Deadliest Catch, Trollman and Swords on the Line. People can't help but admire the work ethic, endurance and hardiness of commercial fishermen, particularly those working for many hours on end in some of the worst and most dangerous conditions imaginable well offshore. For many years I wanted to do one of the 21 day trips in the depths of Windrup to Iceland, but was unable to because of work and family commitments. Now unfortunately, 35 years on from the notorious Cod Wars, which were finally brought to a conclusion back in the 1970s, marking the end of Fleetwood as a fishing port, the Icelandic run specifically, and distant water trawling generally, are no longer a possibility, which even as a sea angler, I still find quite sad. That said, I can now offer the next best thing in the form of an interview with veteran distant water trawlerman Dick Farrer. Now I know that the way things were done when you first started was to go in at the bottom, and if you were good enough, work your way through to the top, which is what you did. So tell us a bit about how and when it all started for you. In 1937, I was and started uh, in the fishing industry. I come from a fishing family, and my father was a skipper fishing, and uh, of course when I left school at 14, I went straight away into apprenticeship with Dinah's steam trolling company and uh, those are the people I was with right up till the war started and then of course I progressed from there as, a, as an apprentice to a deckhand then through a deckhand and throughout of course I did uh, three and a half years in the service during the war then when I came back Back to the fishing industry, I started again as deckhand, boatswain, and slowly worked my way up till I got my ticket as a setting hand, or if you will, a mate. And then from there, after a certain period of time serving as mate, I then went on to get my skipper's ticket, and then carried on from there as a skipper and mate throughout the years, till finally... At the end, I was retired when the fishing industry, well, before I retired, the fishing industry had collapsed. And then, because uh, there was nothing else to do, apart from which majority of the people, the fishing people did, was to go into the oil rig standby business where we went aboard, the trawlers were turned into oil rig standby vessels for safety reasons, and then we carried on there in those ships right up till I was finally forced to retire through age limitations like. Was this inshore fishing aboard the smaller boats, or did you go straight offshore? No, I went straight off in the, uh, in the larger boats. It wasn't until later on in my career that I went in the small ships. In certain periods of time, like I was in the small boat, in the inshore fishing industry, and then back again into the trawl, into the big ones again. And these bigger boats, I presume, were distant water trawlers working up around Iceland? 
Yes, well, majority of the time at Iceland. I did spend time in the, in the bigger ships, also fishing the own waters of Scotland, off the west coast of Scotland. Now, these distant water trips I take it, on average, would be for around 21 days, regardless of season or weather conditions. Yeah, it was approximately 21, 22 days we used to work, and uh, <laughs> depending on the amount of fish you caught, sometimes you could do a... In the summertime, when there was quite a lot of fishing, but you could do a short trips. I mean, on the east side of Iceland, I was in a ship called the Wear Mariner. She was the, about the biggest ship in Fleetwood. <coughs> and I was mating that ship with a chap called Percy Bedford. <coughs> and she was uh, she was the top ship in Fleetwood with Iceland fishing for quite a few years. And she used to run the east side of Iceland, which crosses a shorter distance. She did quite a lot of short trips, and I was also in a, another uh, another ship, the Moretta, and she was uh, she was one of the top earning trawlers. The chap called Sid Christie, I was mate with him, and she was a very very quick trip she did. She was doing anywhere around sixteen, seventeen day trips compared to the longer trips. Mind you, the longest trips is usually from the west coast of Iceland, because you have a longer, a longer steaming period of getting there and getting back, like to uh, like leaving and coming back to Fleetwood, like. And uh, of course, at the east side, you have the shorter steaming period, maybe a day, a day and a half less each way. So at time, especially in summertime, you could get. Quite a few short trips on the east side, but the majority of trips, the long trips, were from the west side. And then in the winter time, it was usually all long trips, like 22. I mean, and you could get anywhere sometimes as much as 24, 25 days. So, what typically were the running times like? Well, the west side of Iceland was approximately four days, four and a half days. The east side, it'd be three, three and a half, depending which part you went like. The nearest part would be about three days. And how did you spend your travelling time? Would there be work to do, or was it an opportunity to relax before being stuck out in all weathers day and night on the deck for a fortnight or more? Well, the majority of the crew were in watches, but you had what they call a day man, and they'd be, they'd be three or four of the deckhands, and there was... Uh, they was apart from what they needed, the amount they needed for the watches. And they would work, well, you get the name, Dame, and they would work throughout the day, from uh, breakfast time in the morning, say, half past six, seven o'clock, till night time, till the tea time, half past six, seven o'clock. And they would work fixing the nets and all depending, because usually <coughs> you used to work a brand new net each trip at Iceland. When you'd coming home you would get rid of the old net because naturally it would be patched up and worn out like you know depending on the grounds you'd work and uh, you would get rid of that and the uh, coming out of dock the demon and that would they would be working on a new troll fixing it up putting it alongside all ready for shooting like you know when you got down to the ground. Give us a taste of what it was like on a 1940s distant water trawler in terms of accommodation, food and safety compared to how it eventually became towards the end of your fishing career. Well, there's quite a vast change, like 
But the uh, thing was, the conditions, the actual conditions never changed. The the ships themselves changed, the sleeping accommodation and the washing accommodation, eating accommodation, that all changed. But the actual conditions, working conditions, were still the same. They never changed. Apart from the, in the latter days, toward the latter end, he started working what they call the watch below when he was actually fishing. And that meant you you could do up to 18 hours a day on the deck out of the 24, but he was guaranteed six hours out of the 24 below at rest. But you could be 18 hours at a stretch if you was needed, like, depending on the amount of fish you was catching or if you was working rough ground and getting the net busted up and that like, you know. And when you were out there working on the deck, it would be extremely long hours spent cold, wet and miserable. Oh, yeah, yeah. Very bad on the deck. Because the majority, it was only in the latter days when the big stern trials come out that the conditions changed because in the normal, what they, they used to call them sidewinders. And what that meant was that you all the net from the side so that you was never getting away from the wind and the weather and to all the net so that it wouldn't go underneath the ship and foul the propeller or anything like that you had to be on the weather side and that meant that the wind and the waves were coming on that side all the time as you were bringing that net on board and once you stopped the vessel you just laid their broadside and you was wallowing in the water depending on the on the way the weather was while he was bringing the net back aboard and putting it over till he got it down below again. Presumably then, people will be regularly bruised and battered, but were there also more serious injuries too? Oh, quite a lot, quite a lot of injuries, yeah. I mean, uh, quite a lot of the fishermen, ex-fishermen will see with little bits, I mean, same as the finger missing and all that kind of business, you know through different the way because there were no in those days there were no safety precautions on the trawler so what happened if someone got really seriously injured then <clears throat> well you you just ran for the nearest port ran for whatever port was the nearest port you used to run in straight away for a doctor like and for the hospital just uh, minor wounds like you know stitching business and that kind of business cuts and bruises well the skipper was supposed to do that, like, and the mate you were. You, uh, when you got your tickets, you went through a first aid course, just an ordinary first aid course, like, you know. And what about if someone just went down sick without any outward signs of injury? Well, we often used to say, there was a saying that the skipper used to turn around and say, when the bloke had, was bad and he turned around and he finished up, he died, he turned around and said, oh, I didn't know he was that bad. <laughs> but it was like that but it was uh, until he was actually falling down you know he used to keep going to that and then he used to have to take them in then again the same as with an injury you know bad injury like in fact I was in the ship where uh, a lad had his leg took off right from uh, above the knee like and the ship called the Red Plume and he had his leg took off in the Troll wires as they're running through the bollards, even the netting, and the other leg took off. We had to run him into a place called Icefjord in Iceland, like. 
wouldn't he have been in danger of losing so much blood that he might actually die before you could put him ashore? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it might do that. But uh, he got all right, but, but I don't think he would ever be saying that, yeah, you know. Sickness and injuries apart, it must still have been a cold, wet, miserable job on account of the poor quality of the protective clothing back then. Oh, yeah, yeah. Originally, you started off with what we call the old oil skins, you know, and there, there was made of like this coated, uh, like coated canvas, if you will, and uh, waterproof, you know, and they were like a big frock, which fitted over you, and an oil skin, what they call a sou'wester, over your head, muffled and tied down tight. But as the time progressed and they modernised, they started getting what they call the scene net gear. And that was what all the scene, small scene net boxes were. And that was oilskin tra long oilskin trousers and little sea boots. And they were tight at the bottom round the little sea boot. And then you got a smock, an oilskin smock over with a hood, with a fixed hood like, you know, and drawstrings. And that was drawn tight. And it, of course, you could move a lot better, and also there's a lot more water. You didn't get wet as much as you did with the old oil skin, you know, because in the olden days, when, they, when it used to be real, fishing in real bad weather, and some of the skippers used to do an all, and uh, you get a wave coming aboard, bouncing aboard and bouncing up as you were laid all in. It used to hit the deck and bounce up, see, and it used to bounce up under the oil skins, you know, and you'll be wet through, but you never went off the deck till that net was back down below. Did you never lose anybody overboard from the deck in heavy seas? Oh, yeah, there's quite a few. Quite a few have been lost throughout the years, like, you know, different times and in different ways, like, you know. Did nobody wear life jackets when working out on the deck back then? No, you never did in my day. They, they have to do now, by the way, but uh, never in my day. You never wore a, a, a life jacket. It's as it got in the way of that. So if you ended up in the water, that was it? <laughs> oh, yeah, that was it. They didn't get many back once they went over the side. Big gambles for potentially big profits. So what were fish stops actually like back then? Presumably a whole lot better than they are today. Oh, it used to. Especially in the seasons, you know, in the summertime. It used to be full of fish. And yeah, that's where you used to spend the time on deck, you know. And you could do 18 hours. I mean, but I, I've been at, I've been at town before they started, I watched below. I've seen on deck 48 hours and three days on the deck without sleep. Just getting your meals. Men falling asleep in the meals, you know. And it seemed, seemed having a cigarette, you know, and that, that tired and that asleep, the, they sat there till it burnt their hands and they woke up, you know. It was a bad industry out of there. And not always very well paid either, despite the conditions, the risks and the hours I take it. Oh, no, no. I mean, it all depended on what the catch made. Because it was all, what is it, with those people ashore, you know, I mean, they had the saying, <coughs> whatever the catch made. And that was the trouble. When you got all the fish, all these big amounts of fish, that brought the market down like that. <coughs> Seeing you come in dock and of course you'd all be you'd all come in dock landing big big loads of fish and of course the market would be right down and 
I mean, you could go on uh, in debt, you know, you go down to the office and in debt and get a sub from from the next trip, whatever you made the next trip like. I mean, you could be in debt going to see the next trip. It was a bad industry, it was. What kind of fish were you mainly looking for to get a good payday, or as you said, to clear any existing debts? Well, the majority of what they did at Iceland was cod and annex, but it was cod on the east side, but on the west side it was all quality fish, place and uh, lemon soles and olivers, and, uh, but mostly place and addicts like. <clears throat> but in the winter time, at, uh, especially from Christmas, around Christmas time and that, it used to be the time for the place like, you know, the flats. We used to say, and used to get quite a lot of flats there. And of course that was the quality fish and used to make good money then, like, on them, like. Man, you only caught so much of them, like, you know. But uh, used to get a good price for them. The flats was the best fish to catch. Addicts was next, and then cod. But cod, see, the cod, you, you got the quantity. <laughs> Whereas with the, <clears throat> with the others, it's, it was the quality, you know. Although sometimes you could get a lot of addicts, you know, depending on what ground you were on and the time of the year. But majority of the time, it was the cod was there. Because, as I say, there was in the, there was in the bigger quantity. Depending on whether you wanted either quality or quantity, what kind of ground would you be looking to fish, and at what sort of depth? Well, on the west side, it was then anywhere around, it was in shoal depths, it was then around 40, 50, 60 fathom. Mind you, you could go off what we used to call, go off the side, and that used to be off the 100 fathom line, like deep water. You could get cod and uh, redfish off there, like. But on the east side, you, could, you used to be working a lot deeper water on the east side, and anywhere around 80, 100, 120, 150 fathom. And at times when they used to go on, they used to go on the, uh, on the uh, oh, what was that bank called? There used to be a bank as you got in towards Iceland, you know, and uh, used to get the redfish on it, what they call the burgers, and that was in about 220 fathom, that. But uh, that was all you got there, like. And what about the ground itself? Oh, well, the west side was very rough ground. You know, on the west side, you worked all these big, heavy iron bobbins, steel bobbins, you know, on the bottom of the net, like. And they were up to 22 inch in diameter, you know, but uh, <coughs> on the east side, you work a smaller steel bobbins, like, but a smaller diameter, like, you know, 18 and 20 inch like it wouldn't be the same high ground as what it was on the west side it was all high ground on the west side so with less in the way of navigational aids and sophisticated electronics than today to rely on how did you locate your towing runs particularly in bad weather when visibility was low you worked from the land all the headlands and that and you worked little, little lighthouses and that were you know, different points of land how they merged into the background of the lighthouse. Because you're talking about in the olden days, you're talking about a three-mile limit, see? You could see these places. Whereas when they started working the cod wars and that, and you was working 20 and 30 mile off, you, couldn't, you wouldn't have been able to work those marks then. 
because you all like, you had all the electronics then, like, your radars and that. But in the olden days, there was the, all, all these marks. As good as it was, more fish would presumably mean more frequent hauling of the nets day and night, with less time for sleep or rest in between tours. Depending on the fishing, it could be two hours, two and a half hours, but if the fishing was just normal and you, you won't get a lot of fish, it would be about three hours. About three hours. That's at Iceland, usually about three hours. But I have been, especially in that ship I tell you about the Moretta, I have seen us all every 20 minutes. There's that much fish there at the place called the East Stones at the east side of Iceland. There was that much fish there was all in every 20 minutes. And the net was just four, four or five lifts, you know, taken out of the net. A cod, that, there was that much fish. So we've looked at how hard life could be back then on the deck, but just as hard in a different way as a skipper up there in the wheelhouse. They're responsible for everyone in terms of safety and earnings, plus, of course, the well-being of the board. Oh, <laughs> well, uh, yeah. That's where the stress comes in. And they talk about stress nowadays, they don't know what stress is. They don't know what stress is when they're in ships like that, especially you get in a ship on the west side of Iceland, a force 10 or 11 gale, severe, and your radar goes, and you're trying to dodge into the land, and you don't know where you are, and it's, and it's an howling snowstorm, and you're dodging in, and you have the sounder on, and you're shoaling up and shoaling up, and you don't know how far in, because you can get in, and get in at, at, uh, at a place called Stalberg Corner, and you can get in, and you can be 40, 50 fathom, and it rises straight up like that, you know. And you talk about stress. But you either couldn't or wouldn't always find shelter to tuck into in bad weather. Then I suppose you would just have to ride the sea until it settled out sufficiently to get back to work. Oh, yeah, you, had to, you used to pull the gear aboard and drop the doors in, lash all the gear up, heave it all tight, you know, and then set the watches, and then you just used to dodge away head to wind, head to wind all the time. And you would lay and then drift away back. Because when it got too bad, you just kept on going head to wind. No matter where you got to, like, you just kept on. Because naturally, you, only, you didn't move very far, like, just going up head to wind. Worse still, what about the boat getting iced up? Oh, well, that was, that was a regular occurrence. And, of course, once you got to that stage, you all had to, you had to get all hands out with, with iron bars and uh, what we used to call battens, what they used to wedge the hatches up with, the hatch covers up with these, and axes, little axes, you know. And you used to go around knocking all the, all the ice off and shoveling it over like. But what about higher up on the masts and rigging? Oh, well, they had to go so far, like, you know. Was the big worry then of becoming top-heavy and capsizing? Oh, yeah. There was about three ships happened like that years ago out of all the Laurel and the Rodrigo, and, uh, and there was another one, I think. I forget what that one was called. But the Laurel and the Rodrigo there, they just kept on going and going. Weather was that bad, they couldn't turn round. And they were just dodging away, dodging away, and they couldn't stop. It was that bad, and the weather was that bad, that they just couldn't stop and they couldn't let anybody go on the deck to bang the ice away just till they slowly turned over with the weight of the ice. 
Am I right in thinking that you could also steam the ice off as well? Yeah, but they they didn't. Uh, they never uh, they never got onto that they, because see as time progressed, you went to diesel and you had no steam. See, all the ships were diesel in the end, and uh, you had no steam. You only had a little boiler for uh, for washing and all that business, like you know. There was really no steam for to for use in regard to that business. They did try at one time the electric pads, electric heaters, and the ship called the uh, the Boston. Uh, what was that ship? Who it used to be in Frank? Uh, Bill. Uh, they tried these pads on the front of the ship, on the front of the wheelhouse. <laughs> they tried them to see how they go by electric heaters, you know. Heaters these warm pads. It didn't, it didn't seem to catch on. It didn't seem to <clears throat> to work much by because they never seemed to progress on it like. And did you have any near misses yourself with either ice or bad weather? Oh, I, uh, once or twice. In fact, I picked up to... Uh, what was it? They, I rescued a ship in Morecambe Bay. When I was in these smaller ships, the inshore boats, the ship called the Stephil, he was floating around with the gear and with his net in the screw in the propeller and he couldn't get. That was in about a force eight southwest gale. And we went to pick him up. I was in a ship that used to work for Ward's firm. My father was the ship's husband of it. And the Craig Miller. A little ship, a little and bow ship called the Craig, 80 foot, you know. It was dodging into, going into Ramsey for shelter. And my father come on the, on the VHF and called us up and he said, where are you? And I told him and he said, well, can you get back down to Sol? So I'll give you the position. I said, yeah. And he said, the ship's in distress. And we turned round down the window and we went down and picked him up. But we couldn't, we, we had about six or seven goes that towed him and we parted. The warts weren't strong enough in the end, you know, we parted the wire every time. We just had to take his crew off in the end. We had to let him and he went, he went ashore off Barrowa and uh, in the end he, he was a wreck like, you know, in the end. Tell us a bit now about the differences in working conditions when the switch was made from sidewinders to the more modern stern trawlers. Presumably life became a whole lot more comfortable and safer as a result. Far safer in the... Mind you, personally, I never went in the big stern trawlers. I'd uh, retired before that, like, I never went on in the big stern trawlers all the time I was in the sidewinders. But, uh, the, oh, it was a vast change it was for the crew. Because you were, you're not, you're working under, under cover in those ships. You're all in the net on the deck, but you're not all in the net sideways, you know. That net's coming up the stern, up the ramp, and you're not getting that water flying over you and that, like, you know, as they're working on the deck. And once, and what happens, the fishes all drop down below. <coughs> so you're on the cover, and you got to, and you cut, you, you're gutting and cleaning the fish on the cover. <coughs> you're not working on the deck all the time, like the old, old timers were in the sidewinders. I mean, and the net's still going. But on the sidewinders, you're on the deck, whatever the weather is, working and cleaning and gutting the fish, you know. Just a thought, how did he go on for ice during the summer months when the first fish coming aboard might be 18 days away from going onto a fishmonger's slab? 
Oh, well, you, you had a certain amount of ice you could carry, depending on the size of the ship, you could carry any, uh, 40, 50 tonne of ice. You know, that was put aboard in the dock before he sailed. That was one of the jobs when he was working in the fish room where somebody had to chop that ice, you know, because it all used to freeze solid when they put it aboard, like in your different pounds, as they call them, the compartments. And of course, you used to have to chop that. And that was one of the brasses part, the, the apprentices' job, like, you know. And would that amount of ice last you for a full trip? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, and in fact, that's where your meat used to be, and all in those days, before they got the fridges. It used to be, that used to be the first job, the, the first job they used to do, the dayman. Uh, the first day out of dock, they used to go down and chop a hole in the middle of the ice and bury all the meat in it. You know, and all handy for them to take one joint out at a time each day. Of course, when he got the last day at the trip, at the end of the trip, it used to be a bit very coloured, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you see, little green streaks in there. <laughs> Surprise of the cod was, Fleetwood was a busy, bustling port. It was marvellous, it was. When I think of that, talking, only these days, you know, the other day I was talking about how it used to be. The, the closing all the pubs down, there's hardly a pub that's, a, that's, that's open now. And somebody was telling me they were closing another, another couple down at the end. And those, they used to be, in through the week, they used to be bustling with life as the men landed and each different day and they're coming off the dock and get the wives, or sometimes they didn't get the wives and into the pub, you know, straight into the pub and here we go. <laughs> And it was marvellous it was, but uh, when you go and people like me at my age, you walk around and it's a ghost town. I remember driving over to Fleetwood early mornings back in the 1970s to see what the distant water boats were bringing ashore, and there would be boats still lining up outside waiting for a berth. That's how busy it was back then. But sadly, now the fish key is almost derelict. At one time, they used to give, they give them a number at the end. Of course, the lighthouse was in, on the go then, why I like that, before it got burnt down. And they used to hoist the ball up on it, and everybody used to be down telegraph, full speed, and they all, all used to be going for the first berth, all flying at the at fairway by. They all used to be dodging round and dropping round like that, ready to go as the ball went up. And they used to be jostling one another, going down the channel, bump, bump, you know. They used to do more, more damage going around the trouble getting in dock than they did with all the weather. <laughs> when you were working up around Iceland, particularly in the deeper water, I suppose you'd also bring up unusual, unidentified species of fish. Oh, aye, you could do, but you didn't, uh, you didn't unless you were off the side in the deep water. Normally, you didn't catch anything like that in the shallow water, the 40, 50 fathom like. It was when he was in the deep water, but the place where you used to catch the weird fish, it was up the north of Scotland, off St Kilda's and places like that, out in the deep water, when they used to go out 200 and odd fathom, you know, that's when they used to catch the funny fish. Oh, well, they used to call these, because you, know, you wouldn't say that nowadays, the darky Charlies. Yeah. <laughs> 
these fish because it was black like you know and oh that rat fish and they had big teeth just like just like human teeth they had rats and the, a big spike on the back only about that on a big whip tail you know and they used to be in that deep water and they used to go off there at night time sometime and all you used to get was you might get a box and something like that for a three or four hour tour and all you all you got was about a box and the old big grand as we used to call them granddaddy egg big grandfather egg and that's all you used to get but that's when you used to get these funny fish like you know and in the dark and you drop on the deck and you see them, their eyes glowing red eyes and green eyes like you know Ooh, queer things they were. Marge once sent a big stern troll of a lunida out into deep water off the Irish coast back in 1976, deliberately looking to catch fish species which they might be able to land instead of the ones we're more used to seeing, as a potential way of keeping the boats working after the Cod War. But nobody, it seems, wanted to eat them. What do you remember about that? Yeah, I, I don't know much about it. Like, I can remember there was a play. Uh, there's a place up at off the Norwest coast, off the butt of Lewis, about 40 mile off, what they call Briley Bank. That was named after a ship called the Florence Briley. And she was sent trying the deep water, and she found the ache there. And it was, oh, and it, it was a regular fishing ground after that, and this to the, of course they don't fish there now, there's no trolling. But the ache, ache ships used to fish there, Briley Bank, and used to get ache and olibuts, small half-sized olibuts used to get there, you know. But she found that place, a ship called the Florence Briley. She was running for TNT for her Fleetwood. I suppose the biggest thing to hit Fleetwood as a commercial fishing port was the final round of the Cod Wars. These actually started back in the 1950s and went on well into the 1970s. What are your recollections of that period in the town's history? Oh, I remember a lot about them. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, first, the first one, we, what we used to do... This is where the daymen come in handy. When you start docking the second day, after they'd all got over the bad head like, <coughs> the second day, they get the daymen out at breakfast and they get them on the deck, as long as the weather was okay, you know. And they get them out on the deck, and they, on the port side, the side you didn't use like, you know, from the gallus where the wire goes through, well, of course you didn't use them on the port side. And, but they still had gallus on, you know, from the olden days, like, you know, when they used to use two sides, like. And they used to rig a wire from gallus to gallus, from the fore, right at the forward end of the ship to the after end. And they used to rig a wire, and on that wire you had netting. And netting all laced along it and then to the rail, the ship's rail. So that when they, they used to try and board you, in those days, the gunboat, that they used to send a small small boat, you know, a small motorboat on time, and they used to have this net so they couldn't get aboard, because the other part of the ship was too high for them, you know, the forward part and the after end. And he also had bags of coal, <laughs> if he was a coal burner, had bags of coal and bags of spuds, and he used to be pelting them when he was, and then high-powered fire hose, you know, and they used to be have this hose going over a big, and they used to be pelting them with pieces of coal and <laughs> lumps of coal and all the potatoes and that, you know. <laughs> How they can lay their hands on, you know. 
When they first kicked off in the 50s, the territorial exclusion zone was a lot smaller than it finally ended up, creeping that little bit more seaward with each new round. It went from 3 to 12, see, and then it went from 12 to 24, and of course then it went out of the ridiculous, like the 100 fathom line, like, you know. Yeah. And of course it was miles off the side then. You couldn't work the west side, like, you know, out, out like that. But you had the Royal Navy up there to protect you. Yeah, well, we, we used to what is it? Because used to work what they call havens. You'd have a gunboat, our gunboat. And they had so many gunboats down there. <coughs> one for the east side, and one for the west side, and one for the 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 north side. And they had what they called havens, and that meant they patrolled a certain area where you could fish in. Of course, you get this these high speed. High-speed Icelandic gunboats, and they was fast and all. And they get get them coming in, towing this this cutter like this wire cutter on, on the end of a wire like cutting your boat. And they used to what they used to do used to get so many so many ships fishing, and the rest we used to be steaming around, you know, and try to get in the road, you know, of the gunboat like. You say here he comes, you know, and they used to. Downtown, you know, he used to be steaming, trying to get in his way, you know, so he couldn't get out of the ship, like, you know. But they still used to get out of them and, and cut the thing, like, you know. Surely, it must have been dangerous for the crews out on the deck to have a cut walk, whiplashing back under the towing pressure of the boat. Oh, ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. But they, they didn't bother about it, the gunboat, like, they still did it. And did any of them ever have a go at you? No, no, never, what is it? Never got me. <laughs> no rammings or close encounters? <laughs> no. No? No. I was over in Iceland in the mid-1990s at a place called Akranes where the cutting gear was made and actually tracked down one of the cutters they'd used. Surprisingly, it wasn't very big. It was kind of like an anchor with tightly angled flukes which had blades fitted to the inner edges. I also managed to take a look at the gunboats Odin and Thor in Reykjavik Harbour which had done most of the cutting at that time. It was one of the ships once that they thought, well, I've had enough of it, it was a bit of a go-getter, like, you know. He the Fleetwood lad, and he, he started towing a wire behind him. He started towing a wire behind him with the weight, with the, so much weight on it, to try and catch the, the gunboat's propeller. Oh, there was hell about, all about it. They were, what is it, but they said, well, what, what, why? Why shouldn't we? So it was dangerous. <laughs> what more dangerous than them? I cut in the warp. But in the end, they got their way by threatening to close a very important NATO base if the trawlers were not kept outside their unilaterally declared 200-mile territorial fishing zone. Oh, ah, yeah, that's, that's how it finished. Yeah. So tell us a bit now about how all this affected commercial fishing in Britain, and more specifically, Fleetwood as a fishing town. Well, it just went down the Swanee, didn't it, down the river. And the funny part about it, this chap, the same chap what I'm, what I'm talking about, what did that wire, he was in the uh, the fisheries in Fleetwood, he, he was in charge of them, the Fisheries Association, and he uh, he told me he, he used to take the Jacinta out of Skipper anyway, the first one, like, you know, and he told me then, when the first time we went out and they told me, because I'd sail with him, I sailed with him as a skipper and I'd also sailed with him as a mate when he got going, you know. And he told me, he said, that this scientist come over 
he said he was a top bloke though from Iceland. And he took it, he, he, of course he could tell me that, you know, and he tell me, and you know who I'm talking about, Tommy Watson. Tommy Watson, <laughs> and, they, and he took him round the dock and he said, he looked at me and said, and is this what we did to Fleetwood? Oh, the yeah, scientists. Yeah. Yeah. Just he said he was real, what is it, you know, real put out about it. But that bad no difference, did it? They did it. And now it seems it's the European Union's fishery policy that's hammering those last few nails into commercial fishing's coffin. What, if anything, would you like to say about that? What? Oh, don't stop me off on that. I'll tell you. If I could get... I'll tell you what I have thoughts about that. If you could have been with me aboard the Jacinta, taking these people round, and I would say... At least 80% of the people I took round and talking about the European Commission and European policy and all that, and you could have listened to them agreeing with me about the European Commission and policy that get out. Who's responsible for the most damage to the fishing industry then? The Icelanders or the European Union? Well, I think the European Commission did. Because originally... They first started off at that, uh, at one time, at the end, when they got the last, uh, the last cod war, they did offer to, what is it, <coughs> to let them catch a certain amount of fish, and they turned it down. Yeah. But uh, I don't know a lot about that part, but I know that happened, that they, they did, the Icelanders did offer them, a, they could catch a certain amount of fish each year, Compared to what we used to catch, it was a small amount, they turned them down. So how do you now see the future of commercial fishing in the UK? Your fish stocks are dropping and you're, uh, well, according to the scientists and that, and your, uh, and your rules and regulations are going worse and worse, more and more all the time, that fishermen aren't getting a fur crack of the whip. They aren't, in my opinion. Going from bad to worse, they're just not giving them an inch. They won't give them an inch, they just keep on and going worse and worse all the time, less and less. They're trying to cut them down all the time. They want to be with me on the standby boats alongside the oil rigs with a, with a line and the what is it? And we used to fill the deck with cod. There was that much cod around the what is it, around the oil rigs, platforms. With hindsight then, do you think that the Icelanders actually had the right idea and that instead of opposing them, we should have done exactly the same thing and kept all our own fish to ourselves? Oh yeah, in a way, we, yeah, we should have done the same, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Once they did it, we should have done it. So no hard feelings towards the Icelanders then? Not really, time melted it all. <laughs> <laughs> I had it one time, but... I, you know, it's gone now. So looking back on it all now, despite the hardships and dangers, did you enjoy your years at sea? To a certain extent, yeah. Which town wall used to be when it was bad weather. And when I was on the deck, you know. Mind you, when you're in the wheelhouse, you've got the, what is it, you've got the stress of the crew and that like. But when you're all in and shooting the ship, you know. <laughs> but when I was mate, and under that news, all in town, they used to come and call you out, you know, a pot of tea before all in, and bad weather like. And used to be sat 
as we sat in the galley having the fag light, all muffled up, pulled down tight as you can get at your hood, so no water can get it. Muffle around your neck, you know, until like that. Everywhere sealed up. And you used to sit there and just got out of your bunk, bleary eyed, you know, and you used to think, what am I doing here? <laughs> oh, that's when it used to hit you. And you, you used to listen, you were listening for the telegraph ringing, because you can hear the big bell, you know, all the time. You hear the telegraph ring when they rung down slow speed. And you knew that was the, the last, what they call the short mark, the last 25 fathom coming in before the doors come up. And that's when you used to have to be on the deck. But you hear the engine room telegraph going, out you used to go, and you say, oh, Christ, here we go again. No, oh, it used to be bad then. But you got well paid for it. <laughs> At times you did. <laughs> I don't know. But when you take the sheer number of hours you spent away from home and out on the deck, then divide them into whatever it was you earned, the hourly rate was pitiful, especially considering the conditions. I don't think too many people these days will be queuing up for that type of work, recession or no recession. No, no, not at all. Certainly wasn't the hours you used to put in, you know. Ooh. And it was proper work as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. And especially when it was the winter time and you got the... I mean, I just happened to be mentioning about a chap. They were talking about a chap in my family the other day. And they were talking about this bloke, this coloured chap. He was decking with us in a ship called the Carina. And uh, we are on the north coast of Iceland. And we we come fast and we, we, we the, what they call the belly of the net was out, you know, it was busted. And we had to start mending it. And as we were mending it, I, I felt it, you know, and I thought, hello. And I looked up and you could see it coming along the water, the black frost. And it's just like fog, you know. And you see it move, slowly moving along. And I, sung, I shouted like, you know, because I was mate there. I said, look out, here we go, the black frost. Get it. Blazed up, you know, before we could get there. We went in, we had to go into Isipur the next day with three blokes. And this lad, we used to call him Omo. You read all that, Omo, haven't you? The, mm. the coloured lad. Yeah. Omo, we used to call him. was his white, you know. A pun-like, if you will. And his fingertips was froze. You know, he got frostbite. Three of them did, and the boatswain got frostbite. But he was worse than a lot. In fact, he had three fingertips took off, the boatswain. But the other two, they got over it. But we're in, in, they're in the, in the cabin where they sleep. And in the boat while we're steaming into Isipur. And the feeling started coming back into his fingertips. And the next minute he's, he's rolling, rolling around the cabin. And we're all in that boat getting out of the road. It was just like a Zulu warrior going out. Oh, my hand! <laughs> when the feeling was coming back in his hands, you know. Oh, poor old Omo. And as I say, the boss and they had, we had to leave him. Three of his fingertips was taken off and the, the others was all right, like, you know, like come back and the only fingertips go white, dead white, you know. And that's just, you know, working on the net like. <laughs> but it's bad, that black frost, it's bad. Just like a fog it is, you know, it's coming over the water. That's about it, I think. So there you have it. 
an unimaginably hard and dangerous life with no guarantee even of a payday after you're three weeks away from port. Something which hopefully will put the lives that most of us currently lead into some sort of perspective. So the next time you wake up in your nice warm comfy bed on a cold morning with a few sniffles and consider yourself too ill for work, or when recession hits and you have to tighten your belt a bit to maintain your nice comfortable lifestyle, remember that compared to what you could be doing instead, things aren't perhaps quite as bad as you might imagine, and that there are people out there even today in parts of sub-Saharan Africa, South America and Asia, where even having a belt of time is an unaffordable luxury. Music